Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Education Suspended. Jessica Pfeiffer here. Excited to have you join us. Um, Okay. Just want to let you know, I'm in a new environment right now. I'm actually recording up in our bedroom because our basement, the room that I typically record in is under construction. So it's actually throwing me off a little bit. I'm not sure how this introduction is going to go, but hopefully I don't botch it too much. So we've got a great interview set for you today. I have to admit, you know, while I was editing this podcast, it really, you know, hit me about why it is so fun to have this podcast and record with Grainer because I think we're really lucky that uh, this has led us to so many people that our paths would probably never have crossed if we weren't doing this and just learning from those in the world around us that have the same passion to make education better it's it's just really cool how it's worked so I'm feeling very blessed about how, how well the podcast is doing and, and grateful for all of you for listening. So we connect with Tiffany Lennon today, and she is the executive director of the ACLU for the state of Florida. So you can imagine that we have um, some very good conversation. Major themes kind of that stick out to me are just the impact of being in, in an environment in which you just don't feel a sense of belonging, but just understanding larger systemic issues around education, it's also really important. And she highlights a lot of that. We talk about poverty. We talk about voting rights, how everything's interconnected, nothing's siloed. And the ramifications of different parts of our system and our society play out in education in ways that we're probably not even aware of. It was such an honor to have Tiffany join us. She's incredibly busy these days. And I hope you enjoy our conversation and leave as inspired as I did. I I honestly felt like I was back in grad school getting my master's in social work again and just being so motivated from a policy perspective. So sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Tiffany Lennon. Hey, we hey. made it. We, we Hi. Did. Hi. Hey, Tiffany. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hopefully you won't hear my kid. She's going to take no, this world by storm. Okay. That's great. You're fine. Last episode, my daughter just literally came in the room and is on the podcast. So <laughs> Kid, kids and dogs are welcome. Spouses, not so much, but kids and dogs. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad that our world's randomly collided. I remember talking to your wife and her saying what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. What? I'm like, we're going to need her on our podcast. And she's like, okay. So she volunteered you. So please tell Mindy, thank you. Um, I do so. Awesome. Well, Tiffany, we start all of our episodes the same. What we're going to have you do is introduce yourself to our listeners, talk about what you do, how you got there. And then at the end, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your own educational experience and any connections it has to what you're doing now. And we'll just jump in from there. Great. Well, my name is Tiffany Lennon. I have the privilege of serving as the executive director of the ACLU of Florida. And my background is varied uh, and yet very focused on civil rights, uh, constitutional liberties, and 
my education really has, and my educational experience has really determined the route that I took professionally. I grew up uh, outside of Newark, New Jersey, and at the time it was a town called Belleville, and you know it was it was pretty latent with organized crime and had the second worst school district in the country at the time. And so I had to work extra hard, you know, to catch up to my peers. I I had aspirations of, um, you know, really making a, a difference in the world. And as I pursued my academic career, I, I noted that, but for the color of my skin, you know, my trajectory in life could have been very different. And so it has really shaped and directed uh, the work that I seek to do, particularly as it impacts marginalized communities and communities of color. It, it was it was really apparent to me the privilege that I I received because simply of my skin color. And, you know, I had to work extra hard to be able to um, catch up. As I said to my peers, when I was in college, I only knew women who were teachers. Like I didn't know female in my family had a professional job. Um, I didn't know anybody other than teachers. So I went actually into college to be an elementary school teacher, which, you know, people who know me sort of laugh at that because I could not be any further from an elementary school teacher in so many ways, but it was the only thing I thought I could do to support myself, you know, because I didn't, I didn't see or, or recognize other options for, for women. But, you know, I was hungry, you know, when I was teaching, I was drawn to the at-risk kids uh, that I served. And again, abundantly clear how education is the game changer for so many families. And so I decided I wanted to make a sustainable change, knowing that certainly teaching young kids was was not my calling, but I, I did want to ensure that they had different opportunities than I had. And so I became a lawyer and I worked at the privilege of serving the Advancement Project, which is the sister organization to the NAACP. And my, my first project there was the schoolhouse to jailhouse report, which has become much more part of our vernacular uh, in education. But, you know, I was really devoted and committed to ensuring basic liberties and rights for all kids, particularly, as I said, communities of color and marginalized children. That opportunity fast-tracked me into higher ed, became a professor, but one of my very first jobs in, in the public interest field, uh, I was an organizer for Planned Parenthood in the 1990s. And so while higher ed was great, again, I didn't have that opportunity to really affect change. Um, and so I returned to the nonprofit sector, and here I am at the ACLU doing the good work. I do love it when you said the nonprofit sector, when I reached out to see if you would, wouldn't mind being a guest. I'm like, hey, in full transparency, we can't pay anybody. Everyone does this. You're like, girl, you're speaking to me in my language. Like, don't even worry about that. I'm like, yes, we get it. Us in the nonprofit world. You, you mentioned your aspirations. And when I heard that word, I had to ask you, like, from where? Where's that internal drive that you obviously have? Where does that originate? And how did it develop? Well, I, I blame my dad. You know, I mentioned that I grew up in an organized crime family. My father, who has since passed, found creative ways to make a living, much of which I, I was not aware of. But for whatever reason, and, you know, he spent some time in prison. And for um, a variety of reasons, I was very driven to, to right wrongs. I was driven to 
uh, work on justice issues. Fascinating. When I grew up, and I'm older than than anyone on this podcast, but when I grew up, ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, was like a dirty word. It was never talked about in a positive light. And none none of us who even talked that way knew where it even came from. I would love to know a little bit more about the origin of the American Civil Liberties Union. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So it's interesting because I, I grew up in New Jersey. And so it didn't have the same connotation as it probably did in the Midwest. And make no mistake, it, it's intentional, right? That the ACLU would be seen as like a dirty word or, you know, a, a curse word because the ACLU was started to, to help defend the rights of um, people who are historically marginalized, right? And so that's part of the whole um, system, right? That's part of the whole institutionalization of racism and classism and sexism, right? Is to demonize those people that don't get to benefit from it. So it's effective, clearly, because that's one of the reasons. So the ACLU simply ensures that Everybody has the right to our basic freedoms and our basic liberties. It used to be that having freedom of speech meant something meaningful. And I'm not sure how meaningful that is anymore in this country. And we have really warped the way in which we, we talk about things and, and change the, the meaning behind things. Not to get political, but Ron DeSantis, for example, here in Florida, ran as a freedom and liberty candidate while he's curtailing the speech of teachers and administrators and uh, parents and children. But truth matters little, unfortunately, and currently. Yeah, that is a little bit ironic. And I immediately was going to unmute when you said the notion kind of being rooted in, in you know, freedom of speech but that depends on who we're talking about, right? Like, who do we really want to give that freedom to? And what do we really want them to say? Because if they're a marginalized group, what I have found is, which we all know, is that you're you're not going to have the same freedom to voice. So, I mean, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Look at the myth that we have all been yeah. indoctrinated with around Thanksgiving. Oh, we had this peaceful harvest uh, meal with the Native Americans, right? I mean, the reality mm -hmm. of what happened couldn't be further from the truth, but yet we continue that myth. Yeah. And now it's in some places in this country, it's illegal to try to shed truth on that. And when did education become about untruths? I don't know, but it is deeply sad. So again, so you're the executive director for the branch of the whole state of Florida. And even Grainer, your comment, right, about your question of like when you were growing up, but this, this had a very negative connotation. I think it's coming up for me as the, the impact of where you live and the culture around that, you know, of course, race status in regards to economics plays into that, you know, your LGBT, wherever you identify, and those are going to play into that. But I also think just innately where you live is so impactful in regards to the access you have for your civil liberties, as well as education. I grew up in a small college town. I went to a very liberal arts-based uh, school. And so I, I didn't have the same experience, even though I grew up in Iowa. So it is interesting how I'm guessing region plays into that for you, Steve, very small town, South Dakota, your experience was, was much different than mine. So that being said, Tiffany, can you connect kind of the vision and mission of what you do to, and you've talked about it a little bit, but to education, what's the history of your organization as it pertains to access to education uh, in general? 
The ACLU really looks at the individual rights, so the rights of students to engage in peaceful protests, uh, peaceful speech. While we don't wholly focus on education, what we focus on is what can be said uh, in educational environments. So again, I point to Florida with the WOKE Act. And there is where, you know, you can't talk about critical race theory in schools. You um, can't say gay. I mean, all of these things are 100% impacting education institutions on the one hand. On the other hand, it's being framed as this true liberty issue, you know, and really it serves the government, right? It serves the government and and power holders to perpetuate these myths. So those are the ways in which we directly impact education. But, you know, there's other ways in which other organizations can can affect change. I think about early in my legal career, I, I did some work for the Education Commission of the States. I was a policy analyst, and we looked at civic education in schools and how back then, and this was in the early 2000s, back then we saw this movement to curtail civic education in schools. And that has a direct impact on where we sit today. I mean, this is not popular to say, and I might offend some of your listeners, but we have an uneducated populace in terms of our political process and our political system. And so I don't mean to offend. I'm just intending to be honest. This was 20 years in the making. So we really do have to make a push for civic education back in schools. And just how our government works, right? Like, yeah. what is the process? How does it work? Fascism is popular in this country right now. Yeah. I never thought in my life that I would see a time where, where many people, where it's become mainstream dialogue to talk about, in so many words, you know, we want a fascist government. It's like, where are we? Yeah. But That's never true. did I think that I would be sitting here. I want to stick with this one thing that Steve and I are passionate about, which I'm sure, you know, you have seen and have experienced is that during times when there's so much going on in the world that for so many of our marginalized kids causes an environment around them that they don't feel safe, they don't feel a sense of belonging. What we have found and what we believe is that schools can actually become a place that they can hopefully walk into and then experience that. Now, obviously, depending on where you live, that's not the reality. As we're recording this, this was actually just, what, less than a week, a little over a week of the the shooting in Colorado Springs. So we we are seeing an uptick in these hate crimes, which I think impacts anyone that identifies as queer. Like, I don't think there's any way around it. Even my wife and I were having that conversation of like, we typically always feel safe, but we even start, you know, questioning our own safety, which you wouldn't want for anybody. Anyway, let me land this plane. I'm going somewhere. When when we think about creating these safe spaces, it, you know, to to maybe our educators that are out there that maybe aren't in an area that is overtly welcoming or or sending messages that these kids don't belong. What what are some things that individuals can do to make the safe space in their classrooms? Are you talking about places like Florida where they're prohibited by law? to make a safe space for themselves, let alone their, the kids in their classroom? Or are you talking more like in less severe climates? Probably both, because I know that we have listeners all over. The only thing we can equate 
where we are right now. I mean, I really believe we're in the dark ages. We had this period of enlightenment, just like historically, that was followed by the dark ages, where information and facts are not revered, they're rejected. And I will answer your question, but let me qualify it and preface it with the following, which is that we need a concerted effort. Yes, we can do things one off. And yes, I, I mean, I value teachers. I think they have the hardest jobs in the country. They're woefully undervalued and underpaid. And I think we need more teachers and better paid teachers than um, administrators because our administration has become so politicized. And again, you know, I think really Florida is clouding some of that for me, but you know, we don't need politics in education. We need education in education. So, I mean, I think on a micro level, what teachers can do is put up a flag or use one of those gay LGBT safe zone stickers on their desk, right? There's ways in which you can communicate in hostile environments to people to let them know that they are a safe place on a microcosm. On a macrocosm, we need a systemic effort to affect change. We need to have a concerted effort to reject this. The suppression of the vote is real. I mean, there are concerted efforts throughout this state of Florida, which I currently sit in, where particularly Black communities, are literally redistrict out of being able to have a vote in our democratic process. It's real, and it's not just Florida. It's many states, many Southern states. I mean, this is going to be such a stain on our history, this time period. Um, And we can't afford to not have a concerted systemic effort moving forward. And that's exactly what the ACLU of Florida is seeking to do. We're seeking to change the narrative locally. And I I think in states like mine, uh, where the narrative has gotten so turned on its head, where we have lost control of the narrative, we need to start over and really have and affect those local school districts. One of the best lessons I've ever learned in my career I learned from some of the leaders of the country of Oman. Oman was a colonized country. It's in the Middle East. It was a colonized country. And when they were finally able to kick out the colonizers, everyone, you know, the the folks that were educated, the teachers, the doctors, the lawyers, they returned to the country and they said, the first thing we need to do is get rid of the tools of the colonizer, which for the most part was simply the division of society, the division of communities. And they were intentional about that because they knew they could not succeed as a community with the divided tools that were being used because you can't govern a divided people. I grew up in, a, in North New Jersey, or outside of North New Jersey, where uh, the racial fractions were real. We have to stand together. We have to. We're just fueling the tools of the colonizers. We can't do this. I, I think that recognition has to be part of the systemic change. I feel like I'm taking the best grad school class of my life. Grainer, go ahead. Thank you for that the story. I know you have traveled extensively and have lived in a lot of different places and schooled in London. What did you learn internationally that affects this conversation we're having right now? I learned that our divisions in our country are vast. I learned that some of our individual liberties are a misnomer. Those that maintain power in society like to say that unions are a bad word. I'm, sh- I'm sure, Steve, you grew up in a community where unions were a bad word. And so if you look at Western Europe and you look at the success rate of the average employer there, they do it because they are part of a group. They're part of, I mean, it's not referred to as unions, but they, they have this 
fundamental European rights to collectively organize because as workers, they are much more powerful. And so the right of the collective power is very strong. And in the U.S., the right of the collective power is very weak. And that's where opposing parties will say, oh, individual rights are, are the best. And we are all about the individual right, which we know is baloney by looking at things like the Woke Act and Don't Say Gay Bill and all of that. They don't really mean that. What they really want is to ensure that a collective group of people are not coming together in the fight for a common cause. And so one of the fundamental rights in all of Europe, if you're part of the European Union, is this notion of the workers' collective right to organize and to demand better pay, better health care, that kind of thing. I learned about the value and importance of that. I also learned about many of our economic laws. I believe in the true value of capitalism, which is you allow the market to solve problems. Rather than inventing problems, what if we actually use capitalism to solve climate change? When I was a kid, we had the ozone crisis. People came together and we fixed it. We solved it. We solved the ozone deterioration. It's like, how about we use capitalism to solve a real problem? I believe that it could work. You know, I, I really believe that we could solve many of these problems if we looked at not exploitation of making a profit, but actually a usefulness. I have no idea why I went off on that tangent. I totally forgot, but it makes me crazy. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to the tangent podcast. <laughs> yeah, the tangents are welcome. I, I go on them quite a bit. Steve, Steve, you're not notorious for tangents. Someday you're going to go on one. I, I feel it. I feel it. Yeah, look out, look out when I do. You know me. I always like to bring this back to the teacher's heart. So maybe a little different tangent, but I loved a quote, and I was reading a little bit about Tiffany and some questions that were asked you, and, and you mentioned something about your wife. And, and it, this was the quote, she never met a child that she did not call her own, which I thought was a, a lovely, cool quote. Okay, that's a beautiful sentiment for our teachers. How do we get there? Because we've strayed so far from that that all kids have value, all kids have a divine right to be who they are. What would you like to see from your position? There, that was a tangent. That was a tangent. Wow, Steve. That was quite a tangent. I know. Wow. <laughs> Settle down, Grainer. Settle down. Um, I really feel for teachers. Um, I think I think we have to let teachers be teachers. I mean, they came to the profession because they love kids, because, you know, because they have that same sentiment. Um, and then they get bogged down and then they get politicized, right? And then they're expected to carry out the politicization of education. I think what an individual teacher can do, try to shut out the noise as much as possible and know that, you know, there's a lot of people that have their back and recognize how hard their job is and recognize what we're asking of them is something that isn't even really feasible or possible for a single human to do. And yet it is truly the most important job there is. I think it is the job of parents to demand that politics stay out of the classroom, to demand that individual teachers deserve to be able to be the professionals they are and have their own pedagogy and to be able to approach education in a way in which is true to them so that they can deliver the message and deliver the education. If I had to teach the way somebody thought I should, 
one, I wouldn't be effective. And two, I would hate my job. And so I think we have to really give them the power that they were educated and trained to do, which is to teach our kids. Every time I send a note to a teacher, the first thing I say is, I support your pedagogical approach. I just want to reinforce it at home. Whatever my kid's struggling with, I want to um, work with you at home, right? Because they know our kid really well. And parents need to not vote for school board people that have other agenda and other motivations. Thank you. Um, as a classroom teacher, I, I'm old enough to have had that freedom when I started teaching, and I actually never lost it, thank, thankfully. In 33 years, I still got to be me as a teacher, but I also saw the incursion of the business model into education. I, I saw it all start to crumble. I saw the overemphasis on standardized testing, on evaluating teachers based on data. Not that that isn't at all important, because it is, but I, I saw all of that start to erode the position of the teacher and the joy and the creative wonder of being a teacher. So I just want to thank you because I appreciate that take and the connection to parents as well, that all of us as parents need to be part of the team as well. The ecosystem of education needs to be that, it needs to be an ecosystem there. I'm getting on a tangent again, you guys. Um, but anyway, no, thank you for that take because I think our teachers will really appreciate that. I want to take the bait, though I'm not going to take it fully, but just... You know, we go back to even even the work that you do, Tiffany, and, and the role of families and parents in the educational process. And what we are kind of acutely aware of is that there's a huge generational component to that. So there's families out there that are unaware of their own educational rights, that are that have had their own history with the system impacted in a way that they are now at a place as a parent that they don't know left from right. They don't even really want to engage. So I want to make sure that we acknowledge that because for some it's just 10 times harder. But I would like to pivot because I think another piece that I was really interested um, in having a conversation with you about, and you already said it, right? You, you know, one of your first projects was the schoolhouse and jailhouse report. We have talked about this a couple of times on Education Suspended, which is just this overarching pipeline, right? School to prison, this pipeline, um, and the pretty archaic ways that we still deal with quote-unquote delinquent behavior in education. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and your work on that, and then how can we think outside the box for dealing with these kids that, sure, definitely have behaviors that impact the educational setting and institution, but on, on the flip side, Statistics are pretty clear that our most harsh and penalizing expulsionary techniques or tendencies then mostly fall on our marginalized kids. So if you can just kind of speak to that a little bit, we can kind of see where we go. You will now hear a tremor in the background uh, because <laughs> the timing, uh, uh, having long care people, I think, at my neighbor's house. But anyway... You know, I think the reality is that there are a lot of people that are better and more able to articulate sort of the current challenges and, you know, what can be done. My work on that is 20 years old. That's how long it's been around, you know, this notion. It's been 20 years, which is hard to fathom uh, that we're still having the same conversations. On the one hand, I think other people are far better qualified to talk about how the prison pipeline affects uh, kids and affects teachers and our schools. I will say that 
education is just like every other institution in our society. We might as well say, you know, it's a grocery store pipeline, right? If you're a member of a particular community and you're driving to the grocery store, you know, and you get pulled over, I mean, there are every institution is uh, embedded with this notion and the criminalization. I mean, the history of our police forces in this country were to round up slaves and bring them back to their owners. And so why do we expect that to be any different in schools? Like that's how it is everywhere. It is just heartbreaking that it's that it has existed for so long, but to, to your point, and we actually had Jennifer Jackson on our podcast, uh, well, maybe it was last season, but she's also very passionate about it, but just being aware that it's strategic in a lot of ways, which is, we just had to kind of call a spade a spade there, I'd say. I wanted to get to Tiffany's anti-poverty work as it might relate to schools, and I, I just didn't want to miss that. So where are those lines crossing your work with anti-poverty and what is the school's role or potentially the role in, in helping with that? Colorado actually has some really good examples. Uh, Colorado recently passed having accessible free meals uh, to all of school age kids, you know, and I, I think what I'm always apprehensive about is whenever we talk about what can schools do, I think, um, you know, I think the burden will land on teachers. And it's like, is that the right place to land? Like, how about the administrators? It should land on administrators, right? Not the teachers. You know, I'd like to just emphasize that maybe it should be the role of the administration to, to do something about poverty. And look, poverty is real. I mean, if you're a wealthy person, your chances of having, you know, attacks on your civil liberties much less uh, your chances of actually receiving a decent quality education, much greater. And so poverty is certainly underlining all of this in the U.S. It is, um, I wouldn't say it's the great equalizer, but it certainly does help to level the playing field. I think ensuring that kids are not hungry in school um, and having good quality meals and not demonizing poverty, right? And I know teachers don't do this, but like just sort of normalizing it for those states that don't have universal free lunch. Food matters. Food is important, you know, not having cheese doodles as your snack during the day, right? As a kid, like all that stuff really does matter in the, in the classroom. And so how do we just normalize that? Hey, you know, not everybody has three meals a day and then some, right? It's like, and it's real and it's growing in the U.S. And, you know, I mean, you all know and all of your viewers know, you know, obesity and, you know, how it's really uh, people experiencing poverty and people who are hungry that are obese. That is a part of where we are and just understanding sort of the, the epidemic. I really believe I start from a place where we all have isms, right? We're all sexist. We're all racist. We're all classist. And so teachers are, you know, susceptible to that as well. They might be more aware than others, certainly, but we're all racist, classist, sexist. And so how do, what are we bringing into the classroom? Like, what assumptions are we making? And they might be wrong. They might be right. You know, stereotypes exist for a reason, as my lovely spouse would say. Um, <laughs> but uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, there's also a lot of assumptions that go with that. So how do we, you know, just be mindful of that uh, in, in the classroom, I think matters. It's just this encouragement to 
and again, this comes up, so I'm not trying to bring up all these past episodes, but just the theme of being curious, right? Regardless of what we've talked about today with you, which has been so much. I feel like we have fit a lot in this episode, which is what I wanted to happen. But when we're thinking about access to food, right? The impact of poverty, when we're thinking about the school to prison pipeline, when we're thinking about being a queer student in a school system that you can't say gay, right? I mean, anything for the educators, it's, it's coming from a place of curiosity. What if? What am I capable of doing? Um, asking why? I think those are things that keep coming up. But there's sometimes we don't give space or time to even breathe, let alone ask why for these teachers during their day. So finding them space to be able to do that and can be powerful and can can make a major difference. I think this is an important question for Tiffany because she has a pretty intense job. And, and this will be good for our educators to hear too, is what do you do to balance that? Because there, there's got to be some balancing and some Tiffany care going on. Or what, what do you what do you do to kind of keep your <laughs> compass pointing toward true north in your life? I actually take it all in stride, and I, my intensity and my passion may not demonstrate that. But you know, I I pick my battles, and I can laugh off most things. I have thick skin. I have that Jersey thick skin, so that helps because. You know, 99% of things is not about me. <laughs> you know, um, my attitude of service and how I can help makes a huge difference. And I do, I spend a lot of time working. You know, I for me, work is not work. It's, you know, something I would be engaged in. But I do love a cigar, a good cigar. Who doesn't love that? And uh, we love to boat and I love to beach and hanging out with my kids. And, you know, my wedding vows were that my wife has to make me laugh every day. I have to ensure that she has cream for her coffee and she has to make me laugh every day. And so I, I use a lot of laughter and um, choosing the battles is big. Like, what, what am I willing to really drop my sword on? And there's a fair amount, granted, but, <laughs> you know, uh, if I keep laughing about it, it helps me get through it. I like that. I always say dropping hammers. and I. I mean, I'm just going to thank you for saying that because I needed that reminder. I think Steve and I, well, that was formal. Grainer and I, you know, feel as though there's a lot of battles out there. There's a lot of students and a lot of teachers that need protecting. And we're just at a place right now in history that it feels heavy. It feels, I don't even know what word to use. And so sometimes it's exhausting. And so I appreciate you saying just nowhere to drop the hammer. And that, you know, even those small or the small things that we do, do matter. And you're not doing small things. So I just, again, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on Education Suspended, knowing that you are dropping some big swords and you are in a place right now that it needs advocates like you. So I, I am extremely grateful for what, what you do for so many. I can't thank you enough for coming on Education Suspended. Mindy, hopefully you are listening to this because you connected us. So thank you for, for the connection. I think our listeners would love to see Tiffany's bright eyes. If they, they saw the, the power and the light in those eyes, they'd, they'd realize this is, this is a force and one, one we want to acknowledge. Well, I will just say that my job is easier than when I was a first grade teacher. And so um, <laughs> it really is. I, you know, I did not last. I was there for a year and, um, you know, it's no joke. I think our teachers need 
all of it, they they just need us to stand with them and i'm fully ready to stand with them and i mean that from the bottom of my heart it's uh they have the most important job and the toughest job and thankless it's like this really hard thankless job thank you for ending with that amazing quote i was writing it down stand with them maybe that will be the title of this episode thank you for standing with our teachers thank you for standing with all, all the work that they do and it was such an honor to have you with us today um and i know you're busy so hopefully our paths will cross again but in the meantime keep dropping the swords tiffany we, we appreciate it thank you